just before we start the show, I want to take an opportunity to invite you to join me for the Podfluence Weekly Newsletter, which is available both on LinkedIn and through the official newsletter channel. Now, if you are on LinkedIn and it's easier for you to follow there, then please just click on the link in the show notes, which will take you straight to Podfluence on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe for free and get weekly updates on Podfluence articles as well as episodes. If you would like to subscribe to the full newsletter where you'll get additional materials and, as my little incentive to you, my pre-podcast guest checklist for you to use when you're appearing on podcast shows so that you can be fully prepared every single time, then please click the link to the official newsletter in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Speaking of Influence podcast with virtual business speaker, presentation skills and influence coach, John Ball. Remember to like and subscribe. The Speaking of Influence podcast is uploaded and distributed using Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout makes it really easy to get your podcast started and out to a wide audience with lots of tips and useful tools to help you on your way. If you're interested, check the link in the show notes and start your podcast today. Welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have with me a guest who I've been looking forward to speaking with for a long time now. He is a multiple, having multiple book author and also the co-founder of Dent Global. He's written books like Key Person of Influence, Oversubscribed, uh, 24 Assets, and uh, I'm sure there's more good stuff on the way as well. But I know I've read many of his books many times over, so I'm really happy today to introduce Daniel Priestley. Thanks for having me on the show. I, I'm so happy you agreed to come on. You're like you are one of those people who's on my my dream list of guests that I'd like to get on. So uh, so when you agreed, I was really oh, pumped. I, let's hope I live up to it. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure, no pressure at all, Daniel. Um, for people who may not have come across you and what you do before, I, I encountered you quite quite a while back, but I think that was maybe before Den Global. So so explain a little bit about what it is you do and your and your business for for the audience. So my main business is Dent Global. We run uh, a business accelerator for entrepreneurs, fast growth companies. Uh, We operate in uh, the Asia Pacific region, in the EMEA region, and also in Americas. So we actually have a major office in Sydney, London, and Toronto. Um, And we work with about 3,000 fast growth companies globally, uh, put them through an acceleration program. Um, Part of it is about discovering their value. Part of it's about becoming a key person of influence. Part of it is about creating scalability. Um, so that is, that's the main thing that I do. And we have an amazing team of about 50 to 60 people. Uh, we've got our own in-house video production business, our own in-house book publishing company um, and uh, IT services company. So, um, so we've got a lot of in-house capability that supports the accelerator programs. Um, and, yeah, we, we launched in 2010. And we've had some of the world's most amazing and, and successful and celebrated entrepreneurs who actually teach the program. So most of our entrepreneurs who are on the program are learning from people who have built and sold companies, who have been best-selling authors, um, you know, people who have hired hundreds of people. So they're learning from really fascinating and interesting uh, practitioners of entrepreneurship as well. Great. So other than your own books, you're publishing uh, other entrepreneurs as well? Yeah. So at the moment, we publish about 400 books. 
Yeah, that's, uh, that's fantastic. So I think when when I first encountered you was uh, some maybe maybe even some of your early days in the UK. I'm not sure quite when you moved over to to the UK, but um, we met. I don't expect you to remember, but we met a couple of times at uh, some triumphant events gigs in in London back in those days. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's quite quite a long time ago, but you know it got me familiar with who you are, who you were, and we got connected up on social media. So I've been following you, like you're pretty active on social media and you post a lot of good stuff. I interact with you on Twitter sometimes. And, and so it's, it's always good to see someone who's like really not just doing the business, but sharing stuff and asking questions. With you know, Twitter, interacting. Twitter gave me the notification that uh, yesterday that I signed up 13 years ago. <laughs> so, so quite literally a third of my life I've been compulsively tweeting. Uh, so, uh, yeah, hell, kind of kind of weird how 13 years later, bang. Yeah, yeah, I, I've, gone, I've gone from someone who almost used to be exclusively just on Facebook to, to almost exclusively Twitter and LinkedIn. <laughs> oh, you'll be on TikTok next. I can, I can see what's happening. I can see what's happening. I, I'm not very coordinated when it comes to dancing, and I think you have to do dance routines and stuff on TikTok, but <laughs> well, I'll work on it. It's time to work on this. <laughs> I want to I want to come back to one of the things that um, most has most impressed me and inspired me from something that you've done, which is your book, Key Person of Influence. And it's one of those books that you know, sometimes you come across a book for me anyway, where you read it or listen to it because I like audiobooks, and then you have straight away have to listen to it again, which is exactly what I did, and multiple times since then. And for, for me, it, is, it really was an inspiration about really understanding how to get known in, in any industry, how to really sort of start to stand out. What, what inspired that book for you? Well, yeah. So in the 2000s, um, so I've, I launched my first company, which was called Triumphant Events in 2002. And we were up and down the east coast of Australia. We were touring speakers. We were doing uh, what's called roadshow marketing. Roadshow marketing is essentially event marketing. You put the CEO of a company on stage and you roadshow them up and down uh, the country. And they might be launching a product or they might be um, uh, talking to existing clients about something new. You know, they might be doing fundraising. Uh, we actually launched uh, very successfully a massive national franchise through Roadshow. So I had a specialty in, in Roadshow marketing uh, with Triumphant Events and that company grew very big, very fast. It went from zero to 10 million of revenue before I was 25. Okay. Um, so it was a, it was pretty, pretty insane. One of the ta- tactics for filling rooms was that we used to hire professional speakers who had a bit of a following and we knew that if we put them on the stage, they'd wow the audience and give a really great experience. So if you're putting a boring CEO who's not very good at speaking um, on a stage, you kind of want to have them, uh, you want to have something else on the stage that day as well that's kind of makes it worth being at the event. So we used to hire a lot of these kind of um, professional speakers, best-selling authors, TV personalities, sports sporting legends or ex-sporting legends, um, all of those kind of people would take the stage um, at, our, uh, at our events. And I got a, a great opportunity to spend a lot of time with these people and to see the way they, their lives run and see the way they, they work and see what kind of profits they're making behind the scenes. And, um, you know, you get a real sense, you know, of, of what they're... Like, for example, if you're paying 10 grand for someone to speak and they're booked out three months in advance... You realise that you know they're they're doing pretty well. Um, so I was behind the scenes seeing a lot of this, <clears throat> and all through the two thousands, right up to two thousand and ten, 
um, I, I spent a lot of time around what, what I would describe as kind of key people of influence, these, these people that go, get up on stage. Um, or I saw them mostly getting up on stage, but they're also in the media and writing books and all that sort of stuff. So the thing that I kept seeing over and over and over again was people thrusting business plans at them and will you have a percentage of my company? Will you, you know, would you be a figurehead for my business and I'll give you 10% of the company? You know, can you speak at my conference? You know, uh, I'll happily pay the 10 grand, the 20 grand. Um, and then I also saw that they were quite good friends with all the so, so-called competitors. Like they weren't, com- uh, you know, what the marketplace might have viewed as competition. They were all having dinners with each other every month and talking and discussing how they might, you know, work together and all those kind of things. So they were all actually frenemies uh, <laughs> or, you know, or kind of joint venture partners. And I just, I just got this amazing experience seeing behind the scenes. And one thing that I remember thinking in the late 2000s was how on earth would you compete with someone who has this kind of a brand? So if someone has that personal brand, if someone is that key person of influence, if they can pick up the phone and get through to anyone pretty much um, if they want to or if they've constantly got inbound opportunities, like they're moving at such a different speed to the rest of us that um, that I just thought to myself, this this is just a you know, you until you're a key person of influence, until you move on the inner circle of your industry, you, your full-time job should be to become one because there's not a lot, comparatively, there's not a lot of action happening outside of that top 5% um, of the industry. So I started writing blogs about it. I wrote a blog on a website called Academy. I ended up being the owner and the managing director of Academy. I ended up buying the business. I remember Academy. Yeah, I bought the business at one point. Um, so I ended up, at that point, I was a blogger on Academy. I later became the managing director of Academy and the owner. Um, but uh, I wrote a blog on Academy and basically said, um, said that, uh, you know, until you're a key person of influence, your full-time job is to become one. And it kind of blew up a bit and got thousands of hits and people commenting and kind of got a good traction and people wanting to know more and what was my opinion on this. And essentially I said that you've got to write a book, you've got to have a very clear pitch, you've got to have a product ecosystem behind you. So I started just unpacking that in the blog. Yeah. And because it got such traction, I ended up writing the book and the book then got traction and... (laughs) It's actually quite hilarious that my strategy for becoming a key person of influence was to write a book called Key Person of Influence. <laughs> it was a very literal approach to moving to the sure. inner circle. But one of those what people want to know about. But at what point for you then did you actually feel like you had become a key person of influence? Uh, probably when I started getting paid to speak. Um, I think the, 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 the kind of some of the breakthrough moments for me, I mean, I was... You know, I was speaking at my own events, obviously, but then there was times where people would start emailing and saying, hey, we've got a conference and we'll pay you, you know, silly money to come and speak at the conference. And it was like, oh, wow, okay, and getting paid to speak around the world and, um, you know, those kind of things. Uh, and also people coming up and asking for a signed copy of the book is pretty special. Um, I, I can tell you, you know, that if you've got even, you know, anything less than being a Zen monk, um, and, uh, and, you know, having your ego completely in check, but there's something very nice when someone comes up and says, Hey, I love your book. Um, could I get, could I get a signed copy? And it's like, Whoa, yes, that's, you know, I always act cool, but on the inside, I'm, I'm like really kind of glowing. 
I, I, I can well imagine I can put myself in that position and uh, I would be pretty thrilled myself. And uh, so that, that's a great place to get to. But it's so you kind of followed your own process and, and wrote about it and kind of became a key person of influence from doing that process. One of the things that you talk about in there that I think did actually really hit with me was about writing a, writing a book. Mm. And I've heard some professional speakers talk about this as well. It's a similar kind of philosophy, I think, of that having a book is the best business card you could ever have. I think you kind of say something very much the same effect in your book. Yeah, it's a, it's the best business card. Well, one of the sayings that has kind of like a lot of people like, I say that um, the book that changes your life the most is not one you read, it's one that you write. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. So one reason is that a book is an amazing, I'd say it's beyond a business card, actually. It's, it's far more than a business card. It's almost like a salesperson or a business development manager who's out there meeting people. You know, whereas a business card might have your contact details, your book has your whole story and it has your whole value proposition and it has your whole, you know, it typically will have case studies and stories and insights and data and research. And if people read the book, typically a good, a well-written book, people put down the book and they think, gee, I'd love to do something with this person. You know, um, I, I recently actually read a book uh, that um, I immediately got in touch with the author and booked five coaching sessions with them and said, uh, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to, I looked on the website and noticed that they do coaching sessions and said, um, yeah, great. I'd love to, love to do some coaching sessions with you. So, yeah. um, you know, I just, I just thought, great, you know, this is, um, uh, this is a great, uh, now this person's on the other side of the world and they're going to be doing some coaching with me around fitness. Um, and, you know, sort of uh, health and wellness and fitness and stuff. And it's like, you know, that's the power of a book. How would that, you know, prior to having a book, how would that person in Texas pick up a client in London, uh, you know, um, who's who's super pumped to, to talk? So, um, you know, I have a client call tonight uh, where someone's booked me to, to do a, a call with them, a business, uh, a chain of clinics in uh, California. And I do that. Uh, I do that call at eight pm till ten pm tonight, so that we're on the right time zone for for California, and we're doing some work with their leadership team. Um, you know, and how did that happen? Because of the book. Yes. So, um, so I mean, it, it can't just be any old book, right? You mean it has to be something that's giving value, and that people are like going to read it. And think, ah, oh, definitely want to work with that person. They know what they're talking about. Yeah, there's there's a certain formula to writing a book. You want to really convey, um, you know, you've got to be able to put your best foot forward. You've got to, um, I think text, the textbook style book doesn't really have that wow factor. If it kind of looks like just a book that, you know, anyone could have compiled the research and, you know, here's the, here's the stock standard, you know, answers. It's got to have a little bit of a spin to things. It's got to be your take on things, your unique perspective, it needs to tell your story and, and share a little bit about you and what you've been through. And, um, you know, it has to have that little bit of spice in the book where it, it tells the reader who you are and, and what you've achieved. A lot of Now, this brings up another issue. A lot of people say, well, that's all well and good if you've captained a rugby team or if you've, you know, floated your company for a billion dollars. But, you know, what about for, for ordinary people? Now, I've been working with thousands of people over the last 10 years, many of whom have, have written books. And one thing that we've discovered is this concept called the mountain of value. And the mountain of value is if you imagine that you climb up to the top of a mountain and you're standing on top of this huge mountain, you can actually see the entire horizon, everything around you. But the one thing you can't see is the mountain. Right. And 
what I, I use to describe what I'm using, what I'm saying there is that when you're standing on a mountain of value, which many of our listeners will be, um, to you, it, it seems pretty mundane and it seems pretty boring. Um, you know, it's like, oh, you know, of course, yeah, I've done some award-winning projects or I've done that interesting little thing or, or even I've had a failure. I've, had, I've been punched in the face and I had that real setback and I had to recover from that. And actually that, that could be incredibly valuable to a reader. It's, you know, people don't only want to read books by billionaires and sports stars. They want to actually read books by people who they can relate to. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, you know, the whole idea, the whole idea is that, you know, maybe I don't want to read a book by an athlete. Maybe I want to look, read a book by a, a father of four who, who, um, who has to fit fitness in around having kids and, you know, it's, it's interesting because I mean, it's reminding me of a conversation I had with a guy called Matthew Dix, who's a, an award-winning storyteller and, and writes about storytelling as well as being a successful, non, a successful fiction author as well. And he was saying similar kinds of things about telling stories and uh, that people, some people think they don't have a story to tell. And it's that sort of blind spot of our own lives, just thinking that our experience is mundane and not going to be that interesting mm. to anyone. But when you actually start to unpack it, yeah. there's nearly always something there. But also that the most powerful stories aren't always the most uh, wild, wildest things that have ever happened. Like this is a guy I think had has had two sort of close to, uh, close to death experiences and survived them that aren't necessarily the most interesting things. That the most powerful stories are often the most uh, just sat around the, the dinner table at home with the family and yeah. having a moment of realization. And that makes it much more relatable to to a wider audience who's thinking, well, I can't ever relate having been had been in the car crash and thrown through the window. No. <laughs> uh, but I but I can relate to sitting around the the table with my family and having those kinds of conversations. Yeah. Or, yeah. You know, so so I, I think that's uh, you know a different context, but uh, very similar. Very similar. Earlier this year, earlier this year, I read a, a brilliant book called The Surrender Experiment, and the book opens up with this guy saying that when I was 23 years old, the most incredible thing happened to me, which I was sitting there in the living room having a conversation with a friend and I noticed that I had an inner monologue. I noticed that I had a voice inside my head commenting on everything that was being said. And once I noticed it, I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand this voice that just wouldn't shut up about everything. Um, and it's it's funny because the book then goes and talks about meditation practice and it talks about um, you know, being able to quieten the mind and all this sort of stuff. But it was hilarious because his big breakthrough moment, the, the moment, the, 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 big, the big bang moment of the book is sitting in a living room having a conversation and noticing his inner monologue. Um, it was not being thrown through a windscreen or anything. But it's interesting because it's an incredibly captivating book, this particular book, and, um, and it's a lot of ordinary experiences, but it, he unpacks them really well. I want a flip side on that. And the flip side is uh, I work with a client who is a um, Paralympic multi-world uh, record holder, gold medal Paralympic athlete, um, phenomenal guy, uh, has a, a, a kind of blindness and he's also a cycling champion. So he does this tandem bike, bike riding. And when I talk to him about, you know, being at the Olympics and, you know, Team team GB and being in Brazil and being in China and representing the country and all that sort of stuff, 
you know, he, he sort of says, well, you know, it is just a bike race and, uh, you know, what you do, Daniel, is really interesting. But, you know, what I do, it kind of, you know, it's interesting for, for a few days once every four years, but it's really quite mundane for most of that time. And it's kind of hilarious. In his mind, what he does is really kind of dull and tedious um, with a few high points and that I'm doing really interesting stuff. And I'm sitting there looking at him going, you know, it's incredible what you do. And, uh, you know, and we kind of bring, bring out the best in each other by, by kind of reflecting back and saying, don't devalue your story. You know, it's, uh, it's amazing stuff. Yeah, and it's, it's often what makes you more accessible to, to other people as well as what people want to get. But, but yeah, we, we have that tendency. Like we tend to see things just from our perspective and think that other people know what we know or um, have more interesting lives than we do. It's, uh, it's very hard to see what's not inside your head sometimes. But, oh, yeah, completely. Yeah. Coming back then to the key person of influence stuff, and one of the things that I focus on a lot in in my podcast is about public speaking skills. In fact, my, my work is teaching and training public speaking skills as well. You're, everyone has their own journey to becoming a speaker. You started getting on the stage when were you doing your events. Was that the first time you ever did any kind of public speaking? And, and I'd just like to hear a bit, bit more about your development because you're someone who regularly does speaking events now. Mm. So at first I, I was doing roadshow marketing and my, my business triumphant events really focused on this roadshow concept, um, but it was all behind the scenes. It was all, it was actually my job was filling rooms and filling rooms and coordinating the roadshow almost never, uh, well, I, I actually, that's not true. What I did do is I would often introduce the first speaker. So I would, you know, hi, I'm Daniel. I'm the founder of Triumphant Events and, you know, we've, we've brought you here and we've organised this event, um, you know, and our team is here and our fire exits are here and our lunch breaks will be at this time and, and all of that now to our speaker. So I would often do those kind of just the basic MC uh, kind of role. So I, I wasn't unfamiliar of what it's like to walk up on stage and see, you know, 200 faces looking up at you. That... You know, I, I kind of got uh, dipped in for five minutes at a time when we were doing that. So I, I kind of did slightly lose my fear of public speaking just by doing that, you know, on a semi-regular basis. But <clears throat> we were doing a roadshow in 2004 with the CEO of a franchise and um, we'd booked, uh, well, we ended up doing 174 events that year, 2004, 2005. It was like three a week for, for the year. It was in, it was incredible, insane, uh, nonstop roadshow that never ended for a year. And um, we got about three or four weeks in, and one of the downsides of what I was doing was I would hear the same presentation over and over and over and over. And it was just like, you know, I could do the damn thing in my sleep. Anyway... Uh, three or four weeks in, and I've heard this presentation. You know, I've now I've now heard it fifteen times, and um, uh, and I've gotten it, you know, well and truly in my head. And it's a great presentation, a two-hour presentation. Anyway, we're running this event on the Gold Coast, and we've got seventy or eighty people at the lunchtime event. We've got two hundred at the at the afternoon evening event, and then we've got another um, event the following day in Brisbane, and then another day the following event in the Sunshine Coast. And the guy, the speaker, comes in and he's not dressed for going on stage. He says, Daniel, I'm so sorry. My father's been taken to hospital with a heart condition um, and I need to go into hospital. 
and he said, "Look, you you know the you know the presentation. Um, you've heard it plenty of times. Can you just do this lunchtime one, maybe the evening one, um, and just take people through the slide deck um, while while I go to the hospital?" Okay. Uh, to our presentation, um, okay, let's go with it. So I jump up on stage and I deliver, I just, you know, let people know the CEO has been had to go to hospital, but I'll be taking you through the presentation. And lo and behold, we get the exact same result. So the exact same number of people fill in the expression of interest form and, you know, we get the, we get the conversion. And then I did it again that night and we get the conversion again. And the CEO tweaked with this immediately. And he, he says, oh, Daniel, you, you got the exact same result. I guess I don't have to do the presentation anymore. And I went, <laughs> and I went well, if you want to pay me a speaking fee, because bear in mind I'd done a lot of speaking fees, I'd negotiated a lot of speaking fees in the years. I said, well, if you want, to, if you want me to do it, I can, uh, I can free up your time so you don't have to do this anymore, but, you know, you'll just need to pay, add a speaking fee to the, to the, to the mix. So he said, uh, well, it's worth it. You know, if I don't have to be there, I've got other things I can do. So um, uh, happy to pay, happy to pay uh, uh, you know, a speaking fee. So I negotiated myself a speaking fee, which I'd never kind of done before. And next thing you know, I'm delivering uh, three or four presentations a week um, as a paid speaker, paid presenter. And, um, and that year I delivered 170 so it was 2000 and this happened in 2004 and then 2005 we did 174 events which I was the paid which I was the speaker for so it was a baptism of fire um and um and immediately I was thrust into speaking in front of audiences of of regularly in front of audiences of 100 to 500 people yeah there's there's nothing quite like being sort of pushed into a position where you really don't have a lot of option to sort of push yourself to actually go and go do it and go for it and make it happen. And, and it seemed like that really, that worked out incredibly well. Yeah, it, well, it was phenomenal. And it meant that we really controlled, from my point of view, it meant we controlled the whole process end to end and we could charge an enormous amount of money for, for what we did with clients. Yeah. Um, it gave me a view of how the whole business ran and meant we could control the whole business. And that was essentially the key from, go, from going from a million a year to a million a month. Mm. Um, so, so, was, yeah. In, so in your speaking, at some point, you made the transition then from someone else's presentation to presenting your own materials. When, when <laughs> Yeah, well, kind of. When I first came to London, I was presenting Roger Hamilton's materials, Wealth Dynamics, and I actually ended up touring the world speaking in dozens of countries about wealth dynamics. So I gave, gave Roger's presentation. Um, so right up until that point, I just didn't have the confidence that I had anything pre- presentation worthy myself. I would learn someone else's presentation and deliver, deliver it on stage. And part of the value that we could offer to a, 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 you know, a client was that we could literally free them up completely from a, a whole bunch of the work, a, a whole bunch of what they wanted, what they were doing. Um, and, you know, so Roger had created Wealth Dynamics and I, I literally flew around the world presenting Wealth Dynamics all, all over the world uh, and also in the UK. So it was this kind of, you know, that was my next major speaking experience, uh, being a global speaker presenting someone else's work. 
think that was where, where I first encountered you at an event at uh, I think it was Earl's Court Exhibition Center or something like that but, uh, yeah yeah it could have been could have been that yeah it was uh, was that yeah. sort of thing was it myself or was it Roger uh, well, both. I, I already already had met Roger uh, before that, so and I think maybe I'd been to another event before that, but that was the event where I first actually uh, uh, first remembered meeting you. So yeah, so, so so that was that was at that particular time. Didn't have any content myself, just purely parroting um, someone else's content, uh, but uh, but building confidence as a speaker. Yeah, which is which is super important and a, a really good thing to have you know i got offered uh, a training position with a company some years ago and I had the choice of you know could have gone down that path didn't look very steady at the time but um i wanted to do my own thing i, I wanted to say what what i wanted to say and ended up not going down the route where i could see the benefits of it from as you're saying you're like getting into that habit and being conditioned to to speaking to a larger room kind um, of being like a tribute band uh you know a gigging a gigging musician who's who's uh doing backup uh backup musician versus someone who's writing the songs and performing their own songs yeah yeah what for you that in terms of whether it's as a speaker or or anyone in public life what makes somebody a, a key person of influence other than having their own book so in the book i talk about five things um the first one is a pitch so it's one thing to give a great inspiring talk, but the world of that has kind of moved on. There was the Zig Ziglar's of the world and Bob Proctor's of the world who literally just turned up. Their product was just talking and giving a canned talk and they would have their, their, they'd have their canned two-hour keynote and they turned up and they gave this motivational talk and, you know, that very much kind of um, they, they, they got to the height of that uh, model um, most key people of influence have a very clear idea as to what they're pitching. Um, so they're actually, they're using the stage as a way of leveraging and pitching some sort of big idea. So think Elon Musk la- launching Cybertruck. Um, you know, think Steve Jobs or Tim Cook launching a piece of technology from stage. So it's like this, the first question is, what are you kind of gonna? What are you gonna be up on stage pitching? What idea are you pitching? What is it you want people to go and do? What movement do you want to create as a result of you being on stage? Because it, I mean, even if you are a motivational speaker, let's say, the the best of the best are the ones who can pitch people to do something that they weren't gonna do um, <laughs> prior to hearing you speak. You know, the the true measure of a great speaker is they move you to some sort of action that you weren't gonna take an hour earlier. So perhaps they inspire you around health and fitness. Maybe they inspire you to um, take your relationship to a different level. Um, you know, whatever it is, but they're, they're, you know, a brilliant speaker pitches you an idea that makes you do something different that you weren't going to do an hour ago. Um, that's, that's a great, that, that essentially is the greatest speaking. Um, you know, if, if people sort of go, oh, that was entertaining, that was nice, um, it's great, good showmanship, but it's it's not it's not that kind of influencer. So the first one is pitching. The next one is publishing. So we already talked about the book. Um, the book is also a bit of, I will say this, it's a bit of a filter. Um, as an event um, booker, as, as an event organiser, someone who's a conference organiser, I don't know why, but there's just this ingrained thing about booking speakers who have a book. 
And um, I don't know why that is like this common filter, but try and think of any of the major speakers who don't have a book. Um, like it's it's really rare yeah. that you they get, haven't written it themselves, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, like it's 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 quite rare that the the super professional speakers that are that are right, you know, all the time up on the stage, even the TED talk, you know, TED talkers and all that sort of stuff. They're published in some ways. In, 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 if they're academics, they've written a, a thesis or a dissertation. Um, sometimes they're New York Times columnists, but more often than not, they've got a book. Like I'd say something like 90% of the TED Talkers have got books written. Not before, um, then definitely afterwards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. After the million views a month is, it is. is over. Um, so it's a bit of a filter. The, the third one is a product ecosystem. So one of the things that key people of influence have is a way of making money that is not uh, leveraging their time so that they can set foot on stage, they can give a great presentation, and then something, if people want to buy something, it's it's anything but their time um, because as soon as you're into the job of selling purely and simply your time for money, in a, especially in a linear way where one client is one unit of additional work, um, you know, and that 10 clients is 10 units of work and 100 clients is 100 units of work. You know, sometimes you might be selling your time, but it's leveraged. So 100 clients is no different to working with 10 clients. Um, so um, so they typically they have product uh, so that they can make money uh, through other ways other than just um, speaking fees. I will say that the, the age of speaking fees is a little bit complex now. That um, It is. Yeah, pure and speeches. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's there's very few speakers who can genuinely just say I'm five grand to give a talk. Like that's that's it. And my full value is you you pay me for a keynote and um and then I I give a keynote and then that's it. Yeah. Uh, like there's very few people. You know, normally it's exporting legends or you know act you know like some top academic or something like that. Yeah. There's very but there's very few of them. But the ones who make the most money are the ones who actually can afford to speak for free because um, if they want to, because they know that the wheels will go spinning in the background. Um, you know, so Elon Musk doesn't charge a speaking fee. <laughs> he, turns up, he turns up and he's, he, he sells $10 billion worth of uh, Cybertrucks. Yeah. Uh, so product uh, profile. Uh, I define profile very simply as you are who Google says you are. So if I Google you and a bunch of really good stuff comes up and I can see you've got a tribe and a following and you've got good things on page one, two, and three of Google, um, that tends to be, yeah, okay, this is this is a good person I want on stage. What you do not want if you're um, an event organizer, you don't want anyone who's got any controversy around them. You don't want to, You don't want a speaker who you Google them and, you know, there's some sort of fight raging around them. There's haters and there's people who are polarised around them. Um, you, you want a nice, smooth event and you just want a good, clean, good quality profile um, so that when your people are thinking about buying a ticket to the event and they Google the speakers, it's like, oh, yeah, these look, these look like great speakers. I'm looking forward to the event. So profile is about having a nice... It doesn't mean you've got a million followers on Instagram or that you're a New York Times, you know, columnist or something like that. It's just that if I Google you, it's full of really good stuff, yeah. um, reaffirming who you are. And then partnership is the ability to bring more to the table, not just yourself, the ability to bring in partners, the ability to, to have relationships that form um, strategic joint ventures, um, product partnerships, brand partnerships, 
all of that sort of stuff really makes you a key person of influence. So those are the five P's, pitch, publish, product, profile, partnership. And when you, when you have those five P's in place, you, you very rapidly kind of uh, move to that inner circle of the industry. Yeah, and do, do all of the five pieces need to be there, do you think? They tend to multiply against each other. So as with any multiplication, if any, of, if any multiplication series is a zero, it kind of zeroes off everything else. Um, so you might have some that are stronger and weaker than others, but it tends to be that, um, you know, if you've got a weakness and you bring it up, it multiplies against the whole rest of, you know, the weakness. So, for example, there's this guy called Jay Shetty who has 50 million followers on, you know, he's a friend of mine. I actually knew him when he was just starting out, which was kind of cool. I, I used to meet him in Houston Station, like back before he was famous. And uh, But he today he's got like 50 million followers on social media. He's got 7 million Instagram followers. He's He's got all that, but he's only just putting his book out at the moment. So his book goes live this week and, um, you know, he hadn't published that book, uh, but watch what will happen. What will happen is that hundreds of thousands of people are going to buy that book. They're going to read that book and it's going to galvanize who he is to them. So they have a superficial relationship with him currently looking at his Instagram feed. But as soon as they read that book, suddenly they go, Oh wow! I'm I'm loyal to this guy. I want to I want to know more about him. I'll I won't just turn up if he's in town. I'll pay to turn up if he's in town um, because I've read the book. So what what I'm expecting to see is in the year ahead he will actually go right up a whole other level as he gets a hundred thousand true fans. What was the hardest part about writing your first book for you? Um. The right, I mean, writing is just hard. Writing is writing's hard. <laughs> it's just <laughs> terrible. It's just it's it's hours and hours and hours and hours of work that punches you in the face of like, oh, that doesn't look very good, and that's pretty shit, and you haven't really thought. You thought you knew a thing or two about that, and now we're five hundred words in, and you've said everything that you think you know about that. You know, in that particular chapter. So it's it's hard and it's um it's hard and it's challenging. Uh, and you get no rewards. 99% done pays no dividends. Uh, you know, you get no points for effort in, in the writing. So you might spend a year writing something and then you publish it. And actually the rewards typically come six to 12 months after you publish. So the hardest point is, is that it is a project of delayed gratification, really, really delayed gratification. And you get no points right up until the end. Um, And pub- publishers uh, and even writers will often say writing a book isn't isn't generally going to make you rich in itself. Uh, from just yeah, from yeah. So um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's you you really have to understand where it fits in your business. Yeah. Um, so for example, I I believe that the old model was authors trying to sell books, and the new model is books trying to sell authors. So. <laughs> Um, right. do, you know, do you know the reason, so the top secret behind the scenes, uh, expose secret of me is that I actually gave away thousands of books. So when I had a, even, even when I first had a book out, I didn't even try and sell the damn thing. I, I printed thousands of them and I just gave thousands of them away. Um, because in my mind, it, do you know how I actually thought about it? I thought about it, that each book is a cup of coffee. So mm-hmm. I would think I would think to myself, 
And this happened to me because one of my one of my speakers who I ended up spending hundreds of thousands of dollars with, I had bumped into him at a conference. He knew I was the a conference organizer. And he said, um, Daniel, I would love for you to consider me as a speaker at your events. Can I send you some books? And I said, yeah, sure. And he sent me this beautiful package with all these books that he had written. He had written 10 books and he sent me the whole, the whole bundle all wrapped up and a handwritten card and everything. And I, I actually skimmed through his books and I ended up booking him for hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of work over the coming years. And, um, and I remember he, he just kicked the relationship off with a, with a free book. He sent me through the book. And I, I remember thinking to myself, if I was to, like, John, if I met you at Home House, right, in Members Club in London, and I said, oh, John, I'd love to buy you a coffee. Of course I would. And, of course, I would happily buy a coffee and it would be £3.50 plus my time and all that sort of stuff. There's, there's not even a question that I would happily sit down, buy you a coffee and talk, talk through what, what I'm up to. But how do you leverage that, right? If you meet four people a day, that's only a 1,000 people a year. So then I thought to myself, well, actually, a book is like a cup of coffee. Anyone that I, if there's anyone in the world that I would happily sit down and have a cup of coffee with and buy them a cup of coffee and chat, I'm going to send them a book. So, so in the first year, I think I sent out maybe two or three thousand books, and um, and it was like it was like for me, it was this opportunity to have two or three thousand cups of coffee without it taking any of my time. You got you got to be impressed. I think anyone who uh, says that, oh, meet them for the first time, say, oh hey, you know, I've got a book. Why don't you have a copy of my book? Um, I think that's always impressive. Even even if you've only had a part in writing the book, it's uh, it's still impressive because most of us aren't published, and uh, most people don't have their 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 own books out there or the names that well known. So it's, it's really important. Yeah. Is there anyone you, you think that the key person of influence strategy wouldn't work for? Um. I mean, we have worked with 50 different industries plus. We've worked with 3,000 clients. Um, we've worked with vets, academics, sporting stars. We've worked with celebrities. We've worked with who already had a following. Um, we, we've worked with IT computer people, AI, you know, AI people. We've worked with um, uh, leading doctors and dentists. So... Uh, you know, you, I'm kind of at the point now where you know it's just it's just a, a good best practice across industry to position yourself as a key person of influence. Can you think of anyone? Not, not really. I, I think it could work with pretty much anyone in any industry, uh, apart from anyone who doesn't really. Yeah, look, if yeah, look, the only the only one is if if there was some if there were serious skeletons in your closet. And you you absolutely know that you're going to get exposed for that fraud that you ran, you know that that pyramid scheme, that Ponzi scheme that you, uh, that you kind of, you know. I suppose, um, and may, maybe if you're making money, if you're making money hand over fist with some extreme niche. Actually, here's a good answer. Other than the Ponzi scheme person who's got a big skeleton in their closet. Yeah. Um, if, if you were genuinely making money hand over fist with a particular niche that you do not want people to know about and you want to stay extremely quiet and not attract any competition, occasionally that happens. And, of course, if that's the situation, 
you just want to shut up and be very quiet and uh, and have a Honda that you drive to work and a uh, and a Porsche for the weekend. But um, yeah, so I, I have come across a few people who have actually said to me, Daniel, I want to be anything but a key person of influence. I want to keep quiet because what I'm doing is working extremely well, and I don't really want to signal to the market that that uh, they should come and compete. One of the things, I mean, that's a great answer, and I, I, I can see that works as well. But one of the things that I, I often say to people, because I'm working in the world of presentation skills and public speaking, is that we are now in an age where we are in the AI revolution, and it's already happening, it's already going on. So, uh, so many of the roles and jobs that exist today will, over time, as is already happening, be replaced by algorithms or by robots. And so, you know, um, and Andres Oppenheimer in his book, The Robots Are Coming, he says that the, the two areas that are definitely protected and still growing at the moment are education and entertainment. And then, you know, if you've got something that kind of crosses those two as well, um, then you're you're in a winner. And I think that's, why, that's one of the things that makes public speaking or, you know, even uh, being an author very relevant right now is like if you want to stay relevant in the business world you have to become more well known you have to be informing and to some degree entertaining people not necessarily mm. making them laugh but uh, you know um, educating in some way to to really stay relevant and to still have something that's uh, worth knowing about because over time who knows what's going to come in terms of new businesses and new jobs yeah. AI, but um for at least for now, we know that education and entertainment are still growth industries. Yes, yes, and no. Um, look, behind me is a uh, is a painting that was created by a robot, and um, it's a humanoid robot uh, that is programmed with a algorithm from Oxford University uh, to emulate creativity and to come up with new things uh, on its own, and. Um, uh, it's it's called Ada, um, Ada as uh, Ada the robot, and basically, so if anyone listening they want to Google and see what's behind me, they you know it's Ada the robot uh, uh, is the is the artist. Um, here's the issue with education and entertainment: one great educator and one great entertainer can now look after a billion people pretty easily. Um, you know this is this is a problem that we're moving into. If you think about a hundred years ago. Had Alicia Keys been a singer a hundred years ago, she would have been in a piano bar in New York playing to audiences of fifty people at a time, and there is absolutely no possible way in 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 hell that she could have uh, been simultaneously playing to an audience in London and an audience in Sydney and an audience in Singapore, um, even though she's got a cracking good voice, she could only play to fifty people at a time um, today. If you've got a voice like Alicia Keys, you can play to a billion people a day, um, you know, or, or you know, millions of people a day, all over the world, on their time scale, whenever they want, wherever they want. Um, so you actually don't need all that many amazing, talented musicians. Uh, a, a few hundred musicians can keep the whole world entertained. Um, the problem is, is that what we're seeing is is a phenomenal science teacher will actually be creating lessons on YouTube that hundreds of thousands of students will be will be loving their take on how to do it and all that sort of stuff. You've got to be surfing this wave. You've got to be ahead of the curve. There's we're going to see a polarized society going forward where essentially 
there's going to be more haves and have nots, like um, less of a blend of that middle class doing well despite not being terribly special. Um, you're actually going to see the middle class in the Western world competing with people in Turkey and Philippines and Indonesia and, you know, Pakistan and India, all of those kind of places that have lots of young, talented, educated people who are quite happy for 75 US dollars a day to be doing a professional uh, white collar uh, kind of job. Um, so you're going to have a lot of people competing for that, yeah. you know, more than yeah. ever. For, for some reason, you make me think of the Incredibles, that thing of like, if everyone has superpowers, then no one's special. <laughs> totally, yeah. Yeah, yeah, this is this is the thing. I mean, I, I personally think that the the, the, the the kind of last industries are going to be hairdressing. You know, at what point will we let a robot cut our hair? Um, <laughs> but uh, they are, I've seen these machines in um, Singapore, I think was the last place I saw them, these uh, robot hairdressers. Uh, I wouldn't yeah. know myself, but yeah, they already... I, I'm, sure that, I'm sure that they'll create it. I'm not sure I'd let a, a humanoid robot near me with some scissors. Oh, no, I don't think um, I would. But, uh, I've watched Space Odyssey too many times. I don't trust them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but the, the real trick at the moment is imagine it like this. Imagine in the 2010s. Here's a visual. Imagine that there's these railway tracks that have been put down and there's these incredible railway tracks going out to the world that if you want to, you can stick something on those railway tracks and they'll just go whoosh, straight down to Africa, straight down to Australia, off to New Zealand, and someone's gone and spent the money and the time to lay down those tracks where it, whatever you want to get out to the world, there is now this base infrastructure to do it. Um, and you're either going to leverage that or you're not going to leverage that. And essentially, when you're doing something that's small and localised and non-digital and, you know, it, realistically your business model can serve a limited number of people in a limited number of locations, you're essentially not leveraging those railway tracks. But as soon as you say, okay, I'm going to have a product that can go anywhere in the world, I'm going to have a book that can go anywhere in the world, I'm going to create content that can go anywhere in the world, I'm going to release videos and podcasts and all of that sort of stuff, you might not be the most famous person in the world, right? You might not be Justin Bieber or something like that, but even if you end up with 3,000 people who absolutely adore what you do and happy to subscribe to something, you're actually going to be pretty bulletproof, Um you know, uh, with, a, with a global following of people who quite like you and quite like what you're doing, provided you're leveraging those railway tracks. But as soon as you say, look, I'm, I'm stuck, you know, I only do it in Manchester and I only, you know, I'm, I'm a local model, I only do it in person, I don't release any of my stuff online um, or, you know, or I, product, I produce a product or service and, I, you know, I do it, I, you know, I, I build websites for people, that's it. It's like, okay, unfortunately, those railway tracks go both ways and that person who's in Turkey, that person who's in the Philippines, they're going to be uh, happily shipping work from, from there to here at a fraction of the price. So the best time to think about becoming a key person of influence would be right now. Well, the best time was 2009. Right. And, uh, and, so the, and the second best time is right now. <laughs> yeah, that makes that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It's always the, the sooner the better. But yeah, I appreciate what you're saying that the market conditions are going to change and, and a lot of people are going to be moving in the same sort of direction. I mean, a similar thing happened to me when I started in coaching. Like, uh, it got to the point where like recession was uh, 
uh, hitting and suddenly all sorts of people were calling themselves coaches he had no right no right to be calling themselves coaches and then it's just like the market got swamped and it took a while for uh, all, all the for that chop to come yeah, out for it all to clear and uh, and not everyone survived the purge if you like but yep. um yeah, then the industry kind of calmed down again when people realised actually not anyone can be <laughs> a coach yeah. and not everyone can be successful at it. That, that it's not it's not such a uh, commoditized thing that there's there's a vast difference in uh, in in quality. Yeah. Other other than unethical practices that you mentioned before, what are the things that people are perhaps getting wrong sometimes in in creating or becoming key people of influence that you may have seen? Um. So there's there's what I call functional behavior or functional tasks and there's vital tasks. So the definition of the word functionality is along the lines of performing a task, being able to repeat the task, um, you know, having having a functional working knowledge of what you do. If you're a photographer, you know, it's functionally knowing what f-stops are and apertures and shutter speeds and you know, how to light a room and the rule of thirds and all that sort of stuff. So that's the functional skill set of being a photographer. Uh, The word vital has two meanings, which is uh, life force. So if something's full of vitality, it's got life force um, and also irreplaceable. If something's vital, you can't really replace it. It's uh, you can't do without it, that vital organ. Um, So, so there's this set of skills, which is the irreplaceable life force skills and all of school, your entire life has been about accumulating functional skills. Um, and what actually pays the bills at a certain point is not more functionality, it's more vitality. So the people who have the ability to become the irreplaceable life force of something, um, those are the ones who actually make a ton of money and the functional people organize themselves around those people. So what people do wrong is they focus on more functionality and it's kind of like, oh, well, I'll get, I'll get a master's in finance and I'll get an MBA and I'll, I'll do that work myself and I'll, you know, I'm a really great dentist so I'll, I'll do the dentistry myself um, and I'm a really great web developer so I'll do the web developing myself and, like, I'll just do all the things. I mean, even if you run it to the full extent, you know, there are people, like, there are people who do jobs that you could outsource for 10 pounds an hour, 15 pounds an hour. So, you know, I've seen, I've actually seen entrepreneurs who build themselves out at 800 pounds a day, spending a day doing their own accounting and bookkeeping. And they spend time, you know, responding to endless emails and they spend time doing their own social media. And I sit there and I go, you know, you could have a social media manager on hundred pounds a week. You could have a bookkeeper on hundred pounds a week. You could have, you know, you could literally have three or four people on hundred pounds a week and free yourself up completely of all that stuff. Mm. And you'd probably actually have the net effect, not just of having more days to sell, but you probably end up increasing your day rate from 800 to 1200 because you're now just that little bit more energized than everyone else. Yeah. Um, you know, and sometimes you look at these people who, who make a lot of money and you think, what is it that they do? Like, you know, why, why are they so getting so much paid so much different what they do is they bring people together they the, the thing doesn't happen without them you know you might sit there and say you know is um you know is this particular dj let's say fat boy slim is fat boy slim so much better than every other dj you know is is it that he is it he has functional skills that other djs don't have 
It's like, no, but he's fat boy slim. He, he, if he's there, 10,000 people are going to show up. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got the name. He's got the brand. He's got the reputation. He's got the connections. The, he's got the partnerships he can pull together. If you book him behind the scenes, he can pull together a whole bunch of people. He can have a lot of people who will promote the event because he's going to be there. Um, so it's the actual non-functional stuff that really makes the money, not the not the functional DJing skills. It's the it's the intangible stuff that that we've never been trained at, uh, at school about. So the concept of vitality is so foreign to us. If you've come through school and university, this idea that there's this entire different set of skills that have nothing to do with functionality um, is like a weird com- concept. But that's what people do wrong. The number one thing they do wrong, uh, and here's some practical stuff: stop cleaning your damn house. Like, get a cleaner. Like, you know, yeah. get a cleaner, Ooh. and pay pay the cleaner for four or five hours a week to come in and do the cleaning. And while they're there, that while they're in your house, use that as a trigger to sit down and write up your case studies. Write an amazing blog that you're going to share on LinkedIn. Um, Figure out what your method is and your model is. Take that amazing piece of work that you did and enter it for an award. And, you know, while the cleaner is cleaning your house, you are going to use that time to do something of high value that will set you up in the future. And that simple concept of outsourcing something functional while you focus on something vital um, that brings some life force into the business, that, is, that concept, you can blow that right up to the size of Microsoft and and uh, you know, get the same same sort of idea, but that kernel of the idea is hire a cleaner and do and and write a blog while they're there. Um, that that idea is what most people should be doing. If you and here's the thing: if you think you know it, but you don't have a cleaner, and if you think you know it and you still respond to your own emails, um, and if you think you know it and you still do your own bookkeeping, you don't yet know it. Good advice. Good advice indeed. I have one question more about that I have to ask about key person of influence about your book the, about the underlying theme and maybe you get asked about this quite often oh, and, it's good. Uh, it tells me that they've people have actually read the book okay well <laughs> I, I I'm I'm still a little uncertain whether it's just a very clever device to get people to reread the book or whether there is actually an underlying theme in the book so there's no underlying theme in the book um what I'm referring to when I talk about the underlying theme and for anyone who's not read the book, I, I open the book with the introduction and I, I finish the introduction by saying, by the way, there's an underlying theme that you should pay attention to. And if you figure out this underlying theme, you're going to get a burst of energy. You're going to get super creative and you sit up all night, won't feel tired, and you'll just flow with ideas and information and inspiration if you notice the underlying theme. If you don't notice the underlying theme, a lot of what will be in this book will be fairly pedestrian and it kind of makes people go what like what what kind of weird wizardry are you hinting at here Daniel so here's the thing there's no underlying theme in the book the idea behind the underlying theme is that it's in your life so there's a theme of there's there's something there's a kernel of something that happened in your origin story pre-age 10 or pre-age 15 there's something else that there's a there's a moment of empowerment that happened under before 20. There's a moment of empowerment that happened between 20 and 25. And all of it clusters around a similar idea. Um, for me, having a garage sale when I was 10 years old, that first spark of entrepreneurial 
something entrepreneurial. It was it was actually sparked by a house fire where everything was water damaged or smoke damaged. And then I turned something negative into a positive through entrepreneurship. And there was something in that. And then there was another similar experience that was about the Boy Scout uh, group that I was part of. And we had to raise money to fix a problem with the Scout Hall. Um, and then it kind of, there was this theme of problems happening, like problems that were negative and everyone was upset about. And then an entrepreneurial solution came and solved the problem. And for me personally, when I discovered that my theme is entrepreneurial solutions to to big problems and that the world's biggest problems uh, could be solved with entrepreneurial mindset and entrepreneurial solutions. And then I kind of put language around that, which is I develop entrepreneurs to stand out, scale up and make a dent in the universe. And I created a company around this idea of entrepreneurs solving meaningful problems. And the whole like vibe of why we called the company Dent is Steve Jobs saying, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, why not try and make a dent in the universe, you know, do something meaningful. So for me, it was about discovering that this theme that goes right back to kind of age 10 at least is running, which is entrepreneurship solving meaningful problems. And um, when I got that, when I went, wow, my origin story lines up with my mission, lines up with my vision, then it's like this alignment, energetic alignment and, um, and, and from energetic alignment, you know when you're energetically aligned because you have a burst of creativity. So you, su- you suddenly feel like the stars aligned, you feel like your, your body's aligned, you feel like your mind and your body have kind of like tingle into, into the same space and then you go, woo-woo, and suddenly 8,000 words comes out and mm-hmm. you go, whoa, I'm just in the zone. So what I tried to, in- what I wanted to spark as an idea with that, underlying theme is just purely and simply go looking in your own story see if you can identify the theme because it's that story that's going to be the key to unlocking the real value you've got to offer it's it's great to have an answer to that question and i uh, one i can very much relate to as well been kicking around my head for a few years now hopefully it's a satisfying answer oh yes oh very much so as Um, opposed to the underlying theme is 37 (laughs) <laughs> number 37 appears 37 times well we would we, uh, take it away and ruminate on it still but uh, yes uh, for other than your own books is there a book that you would always uh, recommend people to read <laughs> well getting back to what we were saying before other than my books the, the book that changes your life the most is is the book you write not the book you read so i i'm always people say what what other books would you recommend and i keep saying there comes a point where you've got to stop reading and start writing. Um, you've got to stop consuming and start creating. You get paid for what you create and you get nothing for what you consume. I met this amazing book reviewer and she has a whole, like, you know, she reads a book a week and she's like super into like, you know, she's got a whole method about how she reviews books and how she, you know, kind of skims the book first and then she delves deep and then she writes a review and then she reads and reviews again. And it turns out she's read dozens, if not a hundred plus business books and hasn't actually done anything with it. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, if reading books changed your life, she would definitely be a candidate for being a billionaire, right. um, you know, because she's really geeking out on reading books. But I know people who have written a book, it's done really, really well. It's changed their changed their life and they don't read all that much. They're just out there doing it. So you know, the big, the big message, and I know, look, there are, of course, there are great books I could recommend, but I just want to slap people in the face and say, enough reading, time to write a book. If you've not written a book, 
or even if you've not written your second book, enough reading, time to write. The book that changes your life the most is not one you read. It's going to be one that you write. I think that's uh, probably a, a good, great place to wrap things up on today. When I when I do finish my first full book, I'll be sending you a copy. Brilliant. <laughs> I hope you might read it. Uh, but Daniel, I just want to say thank you so much for, for giving up your time today and coming and sharing so much great value and information. And it's been a real a pleasure and a privilege to chat with you. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed the show. It really was good to get an answer to that question about the hidden meaning in the book Key Person of Influence. That's been bugging me for the longest time. I hope you enjoyed the show. Please make sure you subscribe and like and leave a comment as well. YouTube likes that kind of thing. It's been really great having you come and listen. If you think you'd make a great guest for the show or you know someone who would, please get in touch. John at presentinfluence.com is my email address. You can also find me on Matchmaker FM and on LinkedIn. So come and connect with me and let me know who would be good to have on the show. If you're enjoying the show, if we can make any improvements. We're back next week with more amazing guests, continuing things like the series in humor and presentations, storytelling, and much, much more. See you again for another Speaking of Influence very soon.